Uh, we're going to be talking about modernism and mass culture. This is a, uh, a, a kind of vast topic, um, so we're just going to dip into it uh, briefly today. Uh, I suppose I could start by saying that it's very often that arts engagement in the modern period with a broader visual culture or mass culture uh, is often seen as one of the key characteristics of modernism, uh, modernism in the visual arts. And it, it's often, that's often seen as something that distinguishes modernism from earlier periods when, according to a somewhat oversimplified view, the arts were much more interested in, or the, the concept of art was seen as a much more exclusive uh, uh, category, that art was not like the cheap stuff that you could buy in markets, uh, market stalls, and so forth. As I say, that's an oversimplification, and you could probably give a similar kind of lecture, although you probably wouldn't use the term mass culture, it might be popular culture for an earlier period, uh, but you could give a similar lecture about earlier periods and how oil painting was always inflected by cheap prints and vice versa, etc. Et anyway, this is, as I say, one of the, it is one of the claims that's often made uh, for, uh, for modernism, <coughs> And that's certainly been the case since the 1950s when, just to pick the most obvious uh, example, Warhol, Andy Warhol, famously crossed from advertising to art, from Madison Avenue to, uh, to Soho, and took with him a set of technical procedures uh, and formal conventions that would reconfigure the artwork's relation to commerce, to fashion, and most specifically to serial Reproduction. So this is a this is Warhol working for an ad agency. This is a, a magazine ad uh, where he develops this uh, slightly coquettish uh, style to advertise shoes, and he takes some of what he's learned there over into uh, making art objects. This uh, uh, this particular version of the Coca-Cola bottle just sold for forty million or something. It was at Sotheby's or Christie's in the last uh, week or so. So we've gone from. You know, Warhol was absolutely uh, directly and explicitly from mass reproduced stuff in a high end magazine, but still, you know, printed on cheap paper, mass produced, to something that's going to end up absolutely firmly in the museum world, the fine art world, uh, and so forth. Another example uh, from the same period uh, is this is James Rosenquist on the left, president elect 1960 to 64, who also pulls his images, uh, as Warhol does with a Coke bottle, from the mass media. So this is a, a painted version of a photograph of JFK, uh, so a photograph in the mass media, and then a car ad, uh, an ad for a particular kind of uh, cake mix from an American magazine. Uh, so pulls images from mass culture, translates them into, here, a large-scale uh, painting. Also like Warhol, he comes from a different world of image making. This is Rosenquist on a scaffold standing, uh, and the reason he's on a scaffold here above a New York street is that he starts life as a, uh, a painter of billboards. And in the 50s, the, the vast, uh, the large scale uh, billboards in places like New York were hand painted because the printing, printing technology was not up to printing such large, uh, large images. So guys would go up on uh, scaffolds and paint according to a predetermined, uh, predetermined design, paint the billboard by hand. And again, as with Warhol, he takes 
something of what he learns technically doing that in a realm that is, broadly speaking, mass culture, and translates it into what he then does in uh, images destined, destined for the gallery and for the, uh, for the museum. Since the 50s or 60s, uh, by the time we get to uh, Rosenquist, uh, uh, the, the, the breakdown in the boundary between quote-unquote art with a capital A and other uh, registers of visual culture and the crossing and recrossing of the line between those different registers uh, has only accelerated to the point that it's not clear, I think, anymore that the boundary exists in any meaningful way. So just as, as an example, uh, to underscore that, this is a painting by Murakami, uh, Takashi Murakami, very, very successful, uber-successful kind of art industry, one-man art production uh, industry with vast teams of workers uh, working in his factory, uh, producing images, uh, and so forth. What we're looking at here is what he calls super-flat painting, which is a combination of fine arts materials. This is oil on canvas, a traditional, uh, very traditional material, certainly in the West, a uh, combination of fine arts materials and popular culture. And the culture that he looks at uh, specifically is the otaku world, which is uh, a Japanese term for obsessive fandom. And this is a, a district in Japan, uh, in Tokyo, where those obsessive fans gather and look at what they've got on their stores and you know, collect this stuff uh, obsessively. Uh, so he, he's, he's interested in that culture, and he's interested in one of the things that gets collected in that culture, which is anime, uh, anime and manga, which is uh, animated films, of which we have a few uh, clips here. And uh, manga is comics. So he pulls something of the look of this kind of material and puts it into a fine art uh, context. In that, he's very like Warhol, very like uh, Rosenquist, an updating of, of what they did. He pushes it, though, even further. So here he is uh, on the left holding a canvas. So this is a painting. But as you can see, it has the same design. Uh, here it is in the uh, gallery. It has a similar design to the bags that he designs, the bags he designs for Louis Vuitton. And it's a, the design is a combination of the Louis Vuitton monogram and the camouflage pattern. This is from a show, uh, and this is from outside the show, that took place in Brooklyn, uh, at the Brooklyn Museum, which is one of the great old American museums of art. Uh, Brooklyn Museum, uh, opening on the 1st of January 2008, and the items were said to have been released on January 1st, 2008. So the language is the language of, of, uh, of commercial, you know, the latest Louis Vuitton handbag has been released uh, to the market. That's at Brooklyn, January the 1st. Then June the 15th of the same year, they were released at Louis Vuitton stores worldwide. So here we have an artist who is utterly imbricated, both in the art world, he's got a big show, one-man show at Brooklyn, uh, but also in the world of uh, an utterly commercial, absolutely explicitly commercial uh, world. What we're looking at on the right, uh, these were a series of 10 booths that were put up outside the Brooklyn Museum when the uh, show opened, that uh, were designed to look like street vendors' stalls, the kind that you see all across Brooklyn uh, and Manhattan in cities worldwide, where you normally get knockoffs of Louis Vuitton handbags. So there's a whole game being played here with, you know, these are real 
Murakami Vuitton, Louis Vuitton bags, but looking, they're being sold in the place that you'd expect to get knockoffs. So there's a whole game going on here with, uh, that I think uh, Murakami is playing uh, with questions of authenticity. What is the real thing? Where does the real reside? Where does, how does one find authentic value in the contemporary moment? There are very divided opinions about Murakami. Some people think some people abhor him basically. They think he's a total sellout. You know that the, the invocation here of the museum and Louis Vuitton is a bad thing. That he's basically you know, cashing in as fast as he can uh, on that uh, on bringing those things together. There are others who who want to see in him a slightly more critical meditation on what it means when those worlds come together. So maybe he's offering a critique here of the museum and the fact that the museum increasingly, as the years pass, is willing to hold hands with the corporation. Or perhaps it's a, it's a critique of Louis Vuitton trying to maintain value by associating itself with the museum, even as you know, it, it's threatened uh, from, uh, from another side by countless knockoffs and uh, fakes and so forth. Anyway, we could debate uh, Murakami. Uh, he stands here for us as the latest point, the most fully evolved stage, if you like, in a trajectory that starts sometime in the late uh, 19th century, and it's that that we're going to look at uh, for the most part today. And there will be, I think, two core questions that we should think about as we, uh, as we look at this material. First is what it does to art. What happens to the concept of art? What happens to the way that art looks and so forth as it reaches out into and of course, we should think about the verbs here. What does it mean to reach out? Is reach out the right word? Uh, uh, but as it reaches out into something like a broader visual culture, that's one question. Second question, equally important, is what we might think happens to the audience, or what is implied about who the audience might be as modern art engages with a broader visual culture. And at its bluntest, the question is, is this about an expansion of audience? Is it speaking to a broader audience? Or is it taking something, is it taking forms that are designed for a broader audience, but bringing them back into a kind of elite, uh, hermetic world of still fine art with a capital A? As I say, the late 19th century is going to be our, uh, the, the moment that we look at most closely here. And we're going to look at three artists, each of whose work, I think, raises those both of those questions in slightly different ways. So this is the first, our first example, uh, the chap on the bottom here. This is uh, Puvis de Chavan on the top, the Sacred Grove, 1883-4. And on the bottom, Toulouse-Lautrec's parody of that same painting, painted around 1885. This was, uh, Puvis was in, eight, in the mid-'80s, probably the uh, most successful painter in terms of official recognition. A lot of critics like him, the academy like him, the government and, and local government love him. He's getting endless commissions for museums and town halls, for big mural decorations uh, in public buildings. And this is the big smash of the official salon in 1884. What Puvis, uh, what Toulouse-Lautrec, sorry, uh, and his pals with whom he knocked out this Parody thought about Kubi is, is pretty clear. They don't think much of this kind of official art. This is uh, 
It's a pretty big painting. It's about 10 feet, maybe even 12 feet across, which gives some indication of how seriously they took the job of making fun of, uh, of, of Cuvier. And you can see, essentially, this painting is a series of negations or refusals of the values uh, of this painting. This is uh, it's the sacred grove with the muses of music and poetry and so forth uh, floating around and, and debating and so forth. And at every step, Cuvier, as I say, negates the values. So where uh, Cuvier's uh, airborne muses float in strumming a lyre, his come in holding, I'm perhaps just about to make this out, a gleaming metal cylinder. That's a cylinder of oil paint. So the claim here is, what Lautrec is saying is that paint is not made out of ideal, lofty ideas. It's made out of sticky, oil-based pigment that comes in a mass-manufactured metal tube, and you cover the surface uh, with that. Uh, there are various other negations here. The little boy who's making a laurel wreath, a very noble kind of activity, is replaced by a less elegant boy stuffing his mouth full of a rough loaf of bread. So again, it's, it's kind of materiality, material needs of the body versus lofty ideals. Uh, and then, of course, most obviously, Toulouse-Lautrec uh, pollutes the sacred grove by having these nondescript contemporaries wander in and trample the sacred turf. And most notably is this little figure here, which is Lautrec facing into the, uh, facing into the uh, picture and looking for all the world and quite deliberately as though he's pissing onto the sacred turf. So it's the ultimate uh, and most brutal debasement of everything that official art, that high culture, one might say, stood for. In conjunction with that, in conjunction then with this, the, the rejection of the noble ideals of high culture, Toulouse-Lautrec is very interested in what we might call quote, unquote, quote, low culture, popular forms, uh, mass culture, and so forth. So these are uh, here, this is Jane Avril. Two photos on the right uh, of someone who was one of the great stars of the day, uh, dancer, singer in the nightclubs of mostly in uh, Montmartre, uh, up on the north side of uh, Paris, so a big media star of the day. And this is Toulouse-Lautrec painting, uh, painting her image in 1893. And the image, I think, begins to tell us something about what interests Lautrec about this kind of culture. It's, he emphasizes here the ungainliness of her dance, I think, that this is not, you know, this is the opposite of ballet. It's kind of common, it's ungainly, it looks a little awkward. And he also, I think, perhaps rather cruelly changes her face. In the photograph, she looks sort of conventionally pretty, if one could, one could say that. In the painting, he makes her, look, her face look much bonier, much harder. And I think what he's wanting to emphasize here, or what he's wanting to convey visually, is her working classness. That he's made, he's emphasized what is the important thing for, for him about, this, about her, which is that she's a working class girl who's risen to be a star of the, uh, of the stage, singing bawdy songs, dancing uh, in this ungainly fashion, and, uh, and so forth. Toulouse-Lautrec is, is fascinated by this kind of figure, and at times he, he, he addresses, it, addresses them in ways that still leave what he's making pretty firmly in the realm of fine art. This is, uh, these are a couple of photos of Loie Fuller, who's another of the great stars uh, of the day. And she was famous for an act called The Butterfly, which is what she's doing here. And actually, the, the blur of the photograph 
the slow shutter speed of the photograph conveys perfectly, I think, what was the effect on people in the theater that she whizzes these, uh, uh, this drapery around and under the, 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 uh, uh, the lighting of the theater looks like this ethereal floating uh, butterfly. So it's a kind of ma it was a magical spectacle. Uh, this is the sort of stuff that blew people's minds in the late uh, 19th century. They were pretty easily amused in those days. <laughs> anyway, the, the, the Trek was also pretty impressed by it. And he made this sort of image of her. This is a lithograph uh, of Louis Fuller. And you can see that he's tried to, gain, tried to capture in this medium something of the effect of the, uh, of the show, something of the, of the magic of that uh, spectacle. As I say, we're still firmly here in terms of what, in terms of the thing that Lautrec himself makes in the realm of, of high art. What he's not doing here is uh, what someone like Charest, uh, Jules Charest, one of the great poster makers uh, of the period, is doing. This is a, a, a large color litho folk, uh, uh, poster made to be stuck around Paris on billboards to, to advertise the show. This is a much smaller object, and it's real. It's very much high-end art lithography. Uh, the technique is, is incredible. If one sees it in the flesh, he's, uh, it's mostly not done with a, with a wax crayon, but with uh, a little air blower gun spattering out oily liquid onto the surface. So you have these wonderful spatter effects. Uh, and then it's printed up in a very limited edition, very expensive uh, kind of print. So this is, what we see here is the magic of, of mass cultural uh, phenomenon transferred, as I say, into the realm of, or co-opted by, perhaps, fine art. At other times, however, Lautrec moves directly into uh, the register that Chiray is operating in. This is the true Egmontine, or another uh, uh, big hit of the day. And this is Toulouse-Lautrec's poster advertising them. And this is, this is a poster that's designed to be, just like the Chouret's, put up on billboards around Paris. Uh, and as you can see, the style that, he, uh, that Lautrec uses <coughs> is not unlike the Chouret, kind of simplified lines, simplified blocks of color, <coughs> designed to be instant, legible, <coughs> and eye-catching out, uh, uh, out on the street. If you see uh, photographs of Paris at this period, it is... Every single wall is absolutely plastered with posters. So the, the kind of short, sharp shock of a powerful, uh, simplified, uh, intensely colored image was what you had to do to make the, your poster stand out against, uh, against others. So a question we might ask would be, what does it mean to align oneself as a fine artist uh, here with the style of mass circulation images, and also with the technologies of mass circulation images. This is not a small run uh, uh, top-end print. This is a poster designed to be mass reproduced uh, and pasted up around, uh, around the capital. At times, Lautrec very directly addresses that mass audience and seems quite deliberately to be uh, doing that. This is in the Circus Fernando, the Ringmaster. It's a painting from 1888. Uh, subject matter, as we see, is popular entertainment, the circus. And in terms of address to audience, uh, it's important to know that there were two versions of this painting. <coughs> one of them, and that's this one, 
which is the one that, we, uh, that survives, was exhibited at the Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge is one of the great uh, emerging night, uh, uh, nightclub entertainment locations up on Montmartre, again, emerging in the, and becoming popular in the later 19th century. So he has one at the Moulin Rouge, but he painted a larger version, uh, which is now lost, that was shown at the, the Circus Fernando itself. So it's a, this is a fine art, someone coming out of a fine art background, but making large-scale images for exhibition in non-art locations, and for, at least implicitly, a mass audience. This is not, you know, it's not a gallery, it's not where the connoisseurs go to look at it, it's just in front of the great, uh, it's shown in front of the great public, and serving, of course, as an advertisement for the, uh, for the circus. Toulouse-Lautrec uh, also exhibited in other non-art locations. So, for example, there was a, a large and inexpensive restaurant, or more like a cafe, called the Grand Bouillon, and he showed some of his works uh, in there. As did this chap. This is Van Gogh's portrait of Père Tongui. And thinking about someone like Van Gogh, thinking about someone like uh, Lautrec, exhibiting their works in that sort of location might make us rethink uh, what we might have expected about how modern art was seen by a broader, uh, broader public. It's worth noting that Lautrec was a, uh, something of a lefty. I mean, he's, a, he's a fallen aristo. He comes out of an aristocratic uh, family, but his personal politics seem to have uh, inclined mostly towards anarchism. Uh, so the so the idea that, or well, the, the sense that he might have wanted, at least at times, to have engaged with a broader audience, not just to have the elite, uh, the money elite look at his work uh, or at his images, but a broader audience, makes some sort of sense. It might tie in in some way with his, uh, what we understand of his politics. There is, however, a counter view uh, to all this. What I've been arguing so far is essentially the uh, a kind of Lautrec as outreach uh, model. There is a counter view which says uh, uh, that although Lautrec represented working class entertainers at times in arenas where the working class could also be the audience, uh, and although one might argue that the poster makes the image more democratic, that the poster on the streets of Paris is something that anybody uh, can see, that actually there's something else going on here. And a question we might ask is what happens in Lautrec, <coughs> to the notion of, of class or the popular uh, here. We're back with uh, Jane Avril. It's been argued that rather than democratization, what Lautrec is doing is essentially marketing an image of social marginality for essentially still a middle class audience. So, for example, the, the cabarets in Montmartre, uh, places like the Moulin Rouge uh, that we were just uh, talking about had originally been uh, 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 when they first founded when they, they first emerged uh, mostly frequented by the local working class Montmartre is a working class neighborhood still has little bits of working class uh, uh, remnants uh, today but at that time it's, it's a working class area what happens then is that the artists start moving in because the rents are cheap they can get studios there and so forth uh, so move in partly for financial reasons, partly because certain there was a way of thinking oneself 
of oneself as an artist that had to do with marginality. You've probably talked already in this class about romanticism and things like this. So the, you know, the idea of the artist is outcast, you know, who isn't welcomed by polite society and so forth. Uh, so living in a working class neighborhood, rubbing shoulders with workers, was something that appealed to certain kinds of artists uh, during, the, uh, during the 19th century. What happens as these, these nightclubs become more established is that they start becoming destinations for, uh, for the Parisian bourgeoisie, or at least certain kinds of uh, bourgeoisie. Uh, and the appeal of these places was specifically that they were kind of grotty and it was sort of edgy. So it was a, it was a kind of 19th century version of slumming it in some way, that you went to these places, there were kind of, you know, there were workers around, there were some weird artists, and, you know, they might sit at the next table to you, and that made it kind of a cool experience. So there's, this, uh, to come back to Toulouse Lautrec, uh, specifically, one argument about his work is that it reflects that kind of commodification of the idea of marginality. And that this sort of image, even though it's all the working class woman who's, as I say, has risen uh, to have a halfway successful career uh, on stage, is not aimed at the working class at all. This is still an object that is made for an elite and kind of uh, hip audience. You know, there's a lot of the bourgeoisie in Paris who can't stand to lose the track. They think this is kind of debauched and foul, and it's not like classical art. You know, there are lots of people who still like Poubine, but there's a subsection of the bourgeoisie who see themselves or construct their own identity around the idea that they're sort of hip and they're sort of knowing. And they're the sort of people who, on the weekend, go up to Montmartre, even on Monday they go back to the bank and uh, continue uh, their, their, their lives as, uh, as usual. This, the, the, the debate that I'm outlining for you here, uh, to lose the track as democratic lefty or to lose the track as catering to a particular subsection of the elite and commodifying or objectifying the image of the worker for that elite is an ongoing debate in the literature. So there are people who argue one way, people who argue the other way. If you are inclined to argue for the latter view, that he's really just catering for... Uh, a, a middle-class elite uh, audience, you might point to this sort of photograph as evidence. This is Lautrec himself with one of his artist buddies doing a kind of dress-up uh, masquerade. There are endless photographs of, uh, of Lautrec doing this sort of thing. He and his buddies goofed around a lot, did a lot of dress-up, recorded them in uh, photographs. And this is Lautrec here dressed as so the, the role that he's playing, the masquerade that he's playing, is worker and his friend, as you see, is dressed as the gent. So they're reenacting in this photograph precisely the sort of frisson that was supposed to occur at a place like the Moulin Rouge, where you still have workers, it's still a working class neighborhood, but the gents are at the next table or even at the same table. And there's a kind of tension between, uh, tension between the classes. And of course, the track is not a worker, right? So this is, you know, he's adopting the costume of the worker but playing it for laughs, really, when his buddies, uh, when he shows this photograph to his uh, to his buddies, and we might continue with uh, uh, to map out this debate around this kind of image. Uh, this is tete a tete supper on the left, and at the Moulin Rouge. So again, in that uh, nightclub on the right, there are some who argue that this sort of painting is 
sardonic, it's critical, it's showing the people who you see within the painting in a bad light. So she looks slightly the worse for wear, uh, not, looking at her, uh, not looking at her best. Uh, there's a kind of sense of alienation between her and the guy who's cut off. So they're, they're at this uh, table very close together, but they're not, uh, not really enjoying any real sense of, uh, of community. In other words, these are read as, these paintings can be read as aligning themselves with Toulouse-Lautrec as a critical lefty, if that's what we think uh, he is. And there are people who write, as soon as this work starts uh, being exhibited in the period, there are critics who read him that way, that think he's, these are mostly left-wing critics, think he's a good guy because he's making fun of those debauched bourgeois who come up to Montmartre and uh, get their kicks. But you could equally argue, uh, or people have argued, uh, the counter view, which is that that subsection of the middle class uh, who see themselves as kind of hip also are quite happy to see themselves in this way. That this is not that these are not images that contradict the appeal of slumming it. That part of what you think is cool about yourself when you head up to Montmartre on a on a Friday or Saturday night is that you end up in this sort of state and you know, that you don't look elegant anymore. That you're kind of becoming part of that uh, part of that nightclub. Uh, scene. And to support that, one might look at this image uh, in particular, which in terms of its style is fantastically innovative. The unorthodox perspective, garish uh, stage lighting, strong contours, startling color choices, etc., etc. In other words, it looks very much like advanced painting. And again, the argument one might make is that whatever is shown within the painting the painting itself is not for a mass audience, that this is you know, the most advanced painting that appeals again to a particular uh, kind of elite who see themselves as the people who can understand this sort of, uh, this sort of painting. Uh, just one more example to, uh, or a double example to, to underscore this, the, the idea of, or the difficulty of pinning the track down. This is Lautrec dressed as Jane Avril. So this is another of those photographs where he's goofing around, dressing up, uh, having his snap taken. Uh, and this is Lautrec dressed in a kimono as a Japanese woman, in some way holding this uh, uh, baby, baby doll. So there's a lot of fun being had around these, uh, uh, around these circles. And again, the question becomes, <coughs> as I say, what does it mean for him to dress up as Jane Avril? Does that mean he identifies with her and is in some way on her side? Or does it show that it's really just all a joke for him? That these are all just images that you can pick up, that you can discard? Uh, so what might this tell us about how he represents Jane Avril herself? Okay, so that was the first example. Uh, and I, I fear I've left you with more questions about it than answers, but that reflects, I think that's not a bad reflection of the the state of the literature. He's a much contested uh, figure. Our second example uh, is uh, equally contested. This is Seurat, who, like Lautrec, takes up as part of his subject matter, actually his primary subject matter for his big, uh, for the big paintings, uh, for the large and ambitious paintings that he produces, essentially one a year, uh, uh, takes up popular entertainments as the subject. Here's the sideshow. This is a uh, this is what one would have seen on the street outside a circus or a larger entertainment taking place out of view. 
they put a few of the uh, entertainers and musicians, uh, the dwarf and so forth, to pull the crowd in. It's a, it's a kind of, uh, it's, a, it's an enticement for then the people who line up and move up the stairs and pay at the ticket office and go in and see the full, uh, the full show. Uh, he also paints uh, the nightclubs. This is Le Chaoum, which was apparently a slightly more rowdy and eroticized version of the Can-Can. So we're in, again, a place like uh, the Moulin Rouge, watching uh, modern entertainment. And he also, like Toulouse-Lautrec, paints uh, the circus. In terms of exhibition strategy, they're very uh, different. Uh, Seurat is always in gallery spaces. These uh, the works, uh, these big uh, works of which we've just seen three, are all shown at the Salon des Indépendants, <coughs> which was uh, a rival, a, a salon designed to be a rival to the official salon, which is seen by many artists, certainly someone like Seurat, as impossibly hidebound, uh, tied to tradition and impossible to get into because it had an utterly brutal jury who rejected anything that didn't look rather like Cuvier de Chauvin. Uh, so this, the Salon des Indépendants was founded and was a, a, a kind of innovative uh, space. It had, its motto was that it had neither jury nor prizes. So the idea was that anybody could exhibit. You had to pay a very small exhibition fee, but not one that would put, was designed to put anyone off. So anyone from the rankest amateur to the most advanced avant-garde painter could put their stuff in. It was all hung, it was hung alphabetically, so there was no, not only was there no jury stopping people getting in, but there was no jury putting certain paintings in a better position to be seen, or grouping painters because they thought that they belonged together. It's kind of radically dem democratic exhibition uh, policy. And that's the site that uh, uh, Seurat exhibits these works. Uh, so it's sort of it's sort of democratic in terms of who can show there, but it's still very much a fine arts location. The government provides uh, the space for it to in which it uh, takes place. So it, there's a, a kind of unofficial or tacit acceptance by the government that these uh, that this is a, an art space that is uh, needed. It's not the circus, in other words. It's not like Lautrec putting the circus Fernando in uh, the circus Fernando. Lautrec, Seurat, uh, uh, like Lautrec, is also thinking about mass culture. This is another, he's uh, thinking about mass culture not in only in terms of what he represents, but in terms of how what he represents represents that subject matter. This is another charade poster here for a different uh, circus. Uh, but Seurat, when he died, had 60 or so charades in his collection. So he'd been, he'd been collecting these things. And he talked about wanting to, di to distill from Charest his secrets, the secrets of how he created <coughs> uh, this kind of subject. And you can see you know, the way that Charest represents the, the dance on the, uh, or acrobat or whatever she is on the horse. You know, Seurat picks up something of that, something of the formal vocabulary, uh, these simplified, jagged uh, lines reappearing in his, uh, here in a very different kind of image, oil on canvas uh, painting. The reason Seurat was interested in Chiray, I think, is that he saw, he, he found there possibilities for expressing this kind of subject matter. As, as I say, as he said, he wanted to 
somehow he wanted to get to what he thought, thought were the secrets of charade. The question with Thoreau, I think, is what he thinks of that subject matter. What, is, what his view really is of the mass cultural entertainments that he uh, represents. And it's often argued that he's very cynical about what he's looking at, that he sees it, that he doesn't dig the circus and he doesn't dig the shahoo. He thinks it's all uh, rather problematic. So to take the, the shahoo as, as an example, it's very often argued that this he shows here the emptiness of the pleasure that is supposedly on offer here. So the poses are, are rigid, this kind of mechanically repeated uh, pose of the, uh, of the dancers. The whole scene looks kind of lifeless. The smiles look extremely uh, fixed. And the chap, here's a paying customer. So these are paying performers. Here's the paying customer who looks, it's very often said, rather pig-like. So one account of these, these paintings has it that Sra is, as I say, uh, rather dubious about the idea that this is a site of real pleasure. The guy who pays is an exploitative pig. These are exploited workers who are forced to repeat endlessly the same uh, movements, but there's no real sense of, of, of enjoyment on their part in this, uh, this kind of uh, parody of, uh, of pleasure. Thoreau then might be seen as something like the opposite of Toulouse-Lautrec. Lautrec, or at least one view of Lautrec, is that he finds in mass culture the possibility of authentic pleasure and of a kind of democratization, a uh, possibility of reaching out to a broader audience. Seurat, one might say, sees that whole arena as inherently problematic, that this is a place of, not a place of pleasure, not a place of authentic Community that it's all about uh, what some of his contemporaries uh, claimed that he was up to, uh, which is uh, to show that this was essentially a social phenomenon invaded by, this is sort of uh, language uh, one of his pals at least used, uh, invaded by capital. And what they meant by that was that this was, you know, that this was a, a sort of hollowed out uh, shell of what communal life could be, and it was hollowed out by the fact that it was all about commerce, it was all about capital. So once the, the nightclubs in Montmartre start developing, entrepreneurs come in, they buy them, they start paying people to advertise and propose it, uh, and so forth. And as I say, some of Seurat's pals were wary about that kind of phenomenon. They thought that once it's a paid, once people are getting paid to entertain you and you pay, then any idea that this is really about pleasure or community or whatever it is, is uh, has become impossible. So, that's, as I say, one account of, of Sra, and it comes out of the, uh, the period. It's also the case, uh, just to come back to this, the thing he said about wanting to get to the secrets of Shirei, it can also be argued that Sarah is locked into that world in, uh, in, in another way, rather different way. These are a couple of sheets of studies uh, that he does. So this is a sheet of studies. This is a letter that he wrote uh, to a chap called Bobor, uh, in which he is, Sarah is laying out or repeating something that you see uh, 
in the uh, image below, which is uh, a page from Humbert de Superville's uh, exploration of the idea that certain lines and certain configurations of lines have intrinsic, well, have in them the intrinsic power to produce kind of automatic emotional responses on the part of the audience. And here it's, you know, it's most simple that lines that head up invoke feelings of happiness, and, he, and lines that head down are about sadness, horizontal lines are about calm. And he generalized this from demonstrating it on the human face here to the idea that lines in and of themselves will produce this effect. And as I say, you can see Sarah here repeating the face motif, or here laying out, inverting this design and arguing to Bobor that this therefore produces a kind of automatic effect in the uh, in the viewer that these are lines that have a kind of intrinsic or, or configurations of lines that have an intrinsic uh, power. If we come back to Le Chahou, uh one might suggest uh, that what Sarah is doing here is, as you can see, very clearly structuring the image around a series of raking diagonals, which is to say that however cynical he might be about the world of mass culture, he builds into his own work something of the, uh, or incorporates into his own work, something of the desire for producing automatic effects that someone like Charade, I think Sorrel believed, had mastered. That there's something in the Charade that will generate, uh, this is what Sorrel finds so fascinating, that will generate this kind of automatic response. That still leaves us with a slight question about how to read this image. Because it's not entirely clear whether these are ascending lines or descending lines. If they're ascending, then in theory this is a joyous picture. And that you know, Sarai is not as cynical as we might have thought. But I suppose if you take it from the center line, at least some of them are going down. So perhaps this is, uh, perhaps this is a, 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 a picture that is designed in its very composition and structure to produce feelings of uh, sadness, which might be appropriate to what Sarah perhaps thought about this kind of uh, this kind of scene. Okay, so the third example, uh, just to map out again, a, or to open up a slightly different way of thinking about these questions, is the least famous of the three. This is a chap called Maximilian Luce, who was a close colleague of uh, Sarah's. Uh, so he becomes a pointillist, uh, following in Seurat's uh, in Seurat's wake, but produces a very different kind of work. This is uh, just to give you a sense of the sort of stuff that he paints. Uh, this is the Rue Mouffetard on the uh, left, and the Forge on the right. In his depictions of uh, Paris, Rue Mouffetard is a, one of the streets. There's a lot of student hostels on it now, so some of you may have stayed on or walked up and down. Uh, Rue Mouffetard. Uh, this was uh, uh, in in the subjects that he chooses. Luce was resolutely attached to working class locations. This is not. This is a very very different kind of street from the sort of street that the impressionists had been uh, had normally painted, which would be the Grand Boulevard uh, on the uh, uh, on the right bank. Uh, this was very much at that time a working class neighborhood, and you can see the. Uh, Posters on the wall are much, much more mundane, mostly text-based uh, posters. In other words, these are not the glossy charades that one might have seen in uh, other parts of 
uh, parts of town. In terms of how uh, what the style looks like, the figures are shown in a very blocky and solid uh, type of form, which is meant, I think, Luce intends to rhyme with what he thinks is a very down-to-earth subject matter. So there's an unflashy technique here that rhymes with the uh, the non-flashy nature of the people and of the uh, and of the neighborhood. Alongside this sort of scene, he, he, he paints images of the industrial worker uh, here, illuminated by his uh, by the forge. And we might contrast this with Toulouse-Lautrec, who, when he thinks of the working class, it's all about entertainers. Uh, here, it's just a mundane uh, worker. It's worth noting that Luce never does any sort of sexualized imagery. So again, in that, he's very different from uh, Toulouse-Lautrec. He's also, though, working as a printmaker. This is a, these are two uh, political posters. Uh, one is an ad on the left that would have been put up in a news, a news agent's window uh, or perhaps on one of the little advertising uh, columns in Paris uh, for Les Tom Nouveau, which was an anarchist journal of the later 19th, uh, 19th century. And then on the left for La Bataille Syndicaliste, which is uh, the kind of unionist battle. And as I said, the, the politics here are very explicit. Uh, this guy is calling the crowd to action, the crowd who that carried the red flag of socialism and the black flag of anarchism. Here, this chap is waving towards us a, a piece of paper that says, your enemy is your master. Uh, a good kind of class warfare uh, invocation here pulled from La Fontaine. These are, uh, as I say, uh, these are uh, kind of simple, smallish posters aimed at mass circulation. Uh, and Luce was always very willing to work for this sort of uh, to, to produce this sort of image. Alongside his career as an oil-on-canvas uh, painter, he wants to be able to, and one feels with Luce a real genuine desire to be able to speak to a broader mass uh, audience. So he makes endless uh, prints. I just have a couple more uh, to show you. This is a, uh, on the left, on the right, sorry, a cover for Le, Ch Le Chambard Socialiste, uh, and on the right, on the left, a uh, uh, print, uh, as you see, attacking capital and the state. And these are images that are supposed to be simple in two ways. One is they're supposed to be easy to read. This is not, you know, this is not about kind of esoteric or complicated high art meanings. They're supposed to be utterly legible to any sort of audience. Very simple uh, messages. So here you have the worker chained by, the, uh, by capital, by, uh, by commerce, and by the state. Here you have the, uh, the bourse, the, the stock exchange, with a big fat pig in front of it with a dollar sign underneath it. Uh, so it's pretty clear what the, the politics are here. And here, too, it, it's fairly straightforward. The bourgeois have come out to enjoy uh, some milk uh, from, uh, from the cow. The, the, uh, uh, the Strapline says, oh, the country, <coughs> how they, uh, how these uh, bourgeois patriots love it. But of course, the, the, the meaning of the images that they're not doing any of the work. But this, you know, this is the guy who's actually in the country. These guys are just uh, day trippers who imagine they love the French countryside but don't understand that it's based on uh, based on labor. So it's a very simple image. They are very simple images in terms of their message. They're also very simple in terms of their form. So there's a, there's a kind of declared simplicity here 
in terms of the representation of the figures, in terms of how the, uh, the image looks uh, stylistically. And again, that's designed, I think, to make the prints clearly legible. You don't want the reader to be, or the viewer to be confused. You know, these are propaganda pieces. Uh, confusion is not uh, good for propaganda. But it also aligns the artist with the viewer. So that the look of these images effectively says something like, look, I too, the artist, am like you. I'm not a sophisticated guy. I'm just a regular guy. And of course, that makes the message conveyed by the print more believable. It makes it able to speak more convincingly, I think, to the intended, uh, the intended audience. This again, I suppose, thinking about this alongside our first example, Toulouse-Lautrec, complicates something of the idea that he's aiming at a democratization of the image when he's producing posters. Or at least if he is, he's doing it in a, in a slightly, different, uh, slightly different way. The painting I want to end with uh, briefly is uh, this. This is another loose, it's called a Paris Street in 1871, but he paints it in 1905. Uh, 1871 is the year of the Paris Commune. So these are workers uh, who have set up the, the Commune in Paris, and then the French army is sent in and butchers them. Butchers them, at least if you uh, believe the left-wing accounts. 30,000 workers are supposed to have been killed in uh, seven days. And loose, of course, loose is a lefty, that's become clear, right, from what we've seen. Uh, so he's on the side of the communards. These are innocent victims of the brutality of the state and the military, uh, and so forth. What's interesting about this painting is that it's, uh, it shows the difficulty, I think, of trying to carry through what Luce did in prints into a form that has, or, or a, a register within the... the, the the different registers of visual culture, which has all sorts of associations that make it harder to do this sort of work in it. And that register, of course, is fairly big, oil on canvas painting that gets shown in the Salon des Indépendants. This is where it first uh, exhibits, uh, exhibits this work. The difficulty is that the kind of simplicity of this image, and I think he's, he's deliberately made it simple, so the shutters on these uh, boarded up shots behind are all very simple blocks of, uh, blocks of color. There's even, I think, a kind of deliberate simplicity to the way the figure is drawn, so it's supposed to look uh, in some way unsophisticated. It's not a flashy, not supposed to be a flashy painting. It's not, he doesn't want the viewer to feel that he's flexing his artistic muscles, showing us what a great artist it is. It's supposed to be a kind of down-to-earth, uh, undemonstrative, painting in the way that the, the prints are. The problem is that by 1905, nobody thinks the painting should do that. Nobody thinks that a painting that has this kind of direct simplicity is worth much. So when he exhibits it in 1905, various critics are sort of sympathetic to the idea that you might want to remember the commune, and the, you know, the, the memory of that event might carry some sort of political weight. But none of them find the painting particularly moving or convincing or successful. And part of the reason is, uh, I, I didn't bring this in, but perhaps you'll, you'll know the painting, is that just around the corner from Luce, because it's hung alphabetically, so L-U to M-A is very close, is Matisse's Luce Calme Volte. Is this painting you, you know? Yeah. And, so, and the critics detest Matisse, but they also know that that's kind of where it's at. That the, the questions that Matisse's painting asks which are really questions about formal innovation, 
etc., etc. But that's kind of what's going on in painting. They don't like Matisse, but they know that that's, that's where painting is headed. And this thing just looks like it's kind of caught out of time a little bit. The real problem, the underlying problem, I think, is, of course, that there are different audiences here. The critics, the published critics, writing in journals, writing in newspapers, and so forth, of course, are all, almost all, educated, middle class, almost all male. And they have different kinds of, they want different things from painting than other kinds of audience might. And what Lucy's, the people to whom Lucy's painting is really speaking are the workers. And there's a very interesting kind of post-history to this, uh, to what happens to this painting. It stays in Lucy's studio uh, that we buys it. Uh, and then the CJK, which is like the PUC, the Confederation of, 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 of Unions in France, agree to take it. So they feel, you know, there's, a, there's an audience out there that's not the usual art audience who feel that this is a worthwhile painting and that it speaks to something that they, uh, that they might uh, believe in. So they agree to take it, although it's actually not clear that they ever go around to the studio and pick it up. And then there's a very interesting exchange in the records of the Musée d'Orsay, uh, which was at that time, well, from before the Musée d'Orsay's existence, the Musée uh, Luxembourg, which is the modern art museum in Paris, where in the minutes of, of some of their meetings, there's a debate about whether to accept this painting for the national collection, because his son offers it after he after Luce, uh, dies. And you can tell from the debate that there's unease, essentially, about the politics of the painting. Do we really want this painting in the national collection? You know, is this speaking correctly to our values? And I think those values are double. They're both political. Do we want to remember the commune? Uh, but also aesthetic. Is this the right sort of painting? Do we think that this is? Do we think that this painting fits into the glorious story of 20th century French modernism? And eventually they do. So you see it sometimes in the music. You'll say they hang it sometimes. So anyway, that just to, to reinforce what I've been talking about. One of the things we've been thinking about, which is audiences for art and how different audiences might respond to, or be expected to respond to different uh, different kinds of painting. <coughs> 